0: Good evening, uh, everyone. I hope you can all hear me. Um, To absolutely up front, I am so, so sorry that I am not with you. The title of this conference is Hope for a Weary World. And perhaps one thing that you might hope for is that a speaker, if he's invited, would actually be able to get to New York. Uh, And I have signally failed to do that. So that is why... Um, I am currently sitting in my brother's study in the heart of the um, English countryside looking uh, if I look anything like I do on the zoom screen looking a bit like a kind of ghost in a a sepia fated um, photograph Um, and I thought I would begin by telling you how and why it is that I failed to come to New York for this wonderful conference Um, and I'm guessing that the that The title of this conference, Hope for a Weary World, reflects the fact that over the past few years, the world collectively has been through some quite bad times. And the reason that I'm not with you is part of the ripple effect of that kind of, the the convulsive circumstances that the world has been through recently. Because um, to come to the United States from Britain, You fill out a visa waiver form, which means that you don't need to apply for a visa. And it's a very easy standard form. I've done it many, many times. Uh, You fill out all your passport details, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of it, there are a series of questions, which again, are very easy to answer because they're along the lines of, is it your intention to overthrow the US government? Um, Do you want to launch a chemical attack on New York? All these kind of questions to which the answer is perfectly obvious. No, you don't, you just go straight through this time round for the first time there was an additional question which was have you been to iraq in the past 10 years and unfortunately i had and i thought oh no and i said yes i have and the and, and the statement came up you cannot apply for the visa waiver scheme you have to apply for a visa and i only had two days and i was not going to be able to get it so that's the reason that i'm not here now this this law, I, I found out, came in in um, 2016. It was part of Donald Trump's package of measures that he introduced um, when he first became president. And I can only apologise for the fact that I was not aware of it. Now, in a sense, this is a first-world problem. This is... Uh, you know, the fact that it is difficult in in 2022 it is it can be complicated it can be a challenge to fly from london to new york you know this is this is a kind of ripple effect of the the weary world that we now live in but we have it so easy compared to people who live in infinitely more terrible circumstances and who have been through experiences Infinitely more horrific, infinitely more upsetting than anything that we in the prosperous West has been through, even through the past two years, because the reason that I went, I was in Iraq was I was making a film for British TV about the Islamic State. So ISIS Um, and specifically why it was that they had targeted for persecution when they invaded northern Iraq um, two communities. Christians and the Yazidis, and the Yazidis—I'm sure most of you will know, but maybe maybe some of you don't—are uh, a, a religious minority who were targeted by ISIS with particular cruelty. And you all know how cruel ISIS were in the people they towards people they didn't like. The Yazidis were the particular object of their hatred, and this is because the Islamic State viewed the Yazidis not just as pagans, but as devil worshippers, entirely unfairly. But this meant that when they moved into a city called Sinjar, they killed many of the men, indeed crucified some of them, and they enslaved the women. And we went there to find out why it was that they'd done that. Uh, And we went to Sinjar a couple of weeks after the Kurds had recaptured the city from the Islamic State. But while the Islamic State were, uh, they're about a mile away across kind of no man's land. So if I can get the, the screen share to work, um, I will hopefully. Can you? I hope you can all see that. Um, that is what Sinjar looked like when we arrived, um, and everywhere we went, there were marks of the suffering that the Islamic State had visited on the people who lived there. So this, for instance, is uh, that. The writing on the wall is Yazidi, it's signalling that this is a Yazidi house and therefore to be targeted, as you can see, it's been set on fire, looted. Who knows what happened to the people who lived there? Um, And there was also in Sinjar um, a community of Christians. So we went to the church um, and this is the altar. You can see that it it built of marble. It it had been systematically destroyed. Um, People had used hammers, all kinds of things to demolish it. Um, this is the font uh, There's a, um, a, a, a bomb just in front of the font And what made Gave a kind of extra freestyle of horror To this spectacle of desecration You can see these, the, 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 the shattered frames of, of icons That had been smashed on the floor um, What gave a particular horror to this Was that this church in Sinjar had been founded by Armenians who had fled the genocide in Ottoman Turkey about a century before. So the sense of there being cycles of persecution and suffering and horror was kind of enough to, to fill me with a sense of despair. Now in Iraq, history is very, very close. It's all around these kinds of experiences, the horrors of uh, the ISIS occupation the horrors of what happened to Christians under the Ottomans. It, it, it feels vividly close. But there are also places in Iraq where the closeness of history is even more stupefying because it reaches infinitely far back in time. So we also visited um, a monastery. Oh, hold on, sorry. Um, this is the monastery of Marmatai. Uh, it's looking towards Mosul. Which had been occupied by the Islamic State. What you are seeing is literally the Islamic State. This is the, the land, the territory occupied by, by ISIS. And that smoke is the smoke of, of a US drone um, launching an attack. And the man standing looking out at it is a, a monk at the monastery, Father Yusuf, who welcomed us to film there. And he, throughout the experience of the Islamic State's occupation of this region, he and his brothers had stayed in the monastery. They had offered sanctuary to refugees. They had stayed there despite the danger of ISIS coming up the side of the hill and attacking them. Because, as Father Yusuf said, he and his brothers were pledged, if needs be, to suffer death for the sake of Christ. And when he explained his sense of commitment about to this, he talked in terms not just of past sufferings in the 20th century he went all the way back to the time of the mongols you know the the the, the, the armies that had swept in from uh, from mongolia bringing terrible carnage to the middle east and the monastery had survived that and he talked in terms of the coming of the armies of islam and the monastery had survived that and he said that he was not going to be the man responsible for surrendering the monastery to the forces of horror and despair he kept to the hope that uh, was the core of his faith that even in the very depths of despair there existed hope and this was as i'm sure you can imagine an incredibly humbling message to hear coming as i did from from a country where i simply couldn't begin to imagine uh, facing such dangers and staring into the heart of, of of such misery and despair and yet he had this incredible sense of hope and I think that over the past couple of years in the West, perhaps a sense of that despair has come closer to us, a sense of how cruel and harsh the world can be. Um, so the war that in 2014, 2015, 2016 was being visited on Northern Iraq and Syria is now, it's come to, uh, to, to Europe. So here is a woman in Ukraine. There have been many incredibly moving and powerful interviews with Ukrainians. This is one that particularly struck me because this was an old woman who had lived through uh, the Second World War. Um, And she talked about her parents, how they had lived through uh, the, the famines, the sufferings, the collectivizations that were forced on the Ukrainians by the communist regime. And she talked about uh, Putin's invasion in those terms. And she framed it in explicitly Christian terms, exactly as Father Yusuf did. So when she says on this, the churches were burned, these people were exiled for their faith. She is not talking about the Russian attack that's ongoing. She's talking about what the communists did in the 1920s and 1930s. And again, she is situating the sense of despair and horror that she feels in 2022 in the context of cycles and cycles and cycles of sufferings that the church in Ukraine has undergone just as Father Yusuf had situated the sufferings of his people in the context of the the cycles of destruction visited on the Iraqi church and it is of course it would be palpably incorrect to suggest that the power of Christianity in Iraq, in, in Ukraine, that the only impact that it has is to give a focus of hope to those who are suffering. Because clearly, it is also the case that Christianity has the power, both for the Ukrainians and for the Russians, to motivate them in going to war. And the reason why this is particularly potent in Ukraine is that Ukraine, and Crimea in particular, and Kiev, are the... the, the, They are the centres, they are holy places for both Ukrainians and Russians, because it was through Crimea, it was through Kiev, that um, Christianity came to the lands of the Slavs back in the 10th century. Um, This is... uh, saint vladimir if you're russian saint volodymyr if you are ukrainian as in volodymyr zelensky um and he was the prince of kiev and he married the daughter of the emperor of constantinople an unprecedented honor and the agreement in exchange the quid for for the, the pro quo was that he would be baptized and so he brought his people into the fold of christianity And this is looked at both by Putin and by the the Ukrainians as the kind of foundational moment. And it's a kind of context, it lurks in the background of the war that is going on there now. And it inspires the Ukrainians as well as the Russians to fight. Uh, And there is, for instance, um, a particular figure in this history, a couple of generations before St. Vladimir, um, a woman who served as regent for the very, very young Prince of Kiev. He was three, his her, her three-year-old nephew. It was a, a princess called Olga, who subsequently was, was canonized because she became, um, she was the first member of the ruling house of Kiev to become a Christian. Um, and here she is, Saint Olga. And, and if she has a slightly kind of menacing look on her face, that's not surprising because her understanding of Christianity was a very, very martial one. Um, You may notice uh, flying overhead, there are various birds that seem to be on fire. And this is because um, Olga's party trick, when she um, was offended by uh, neighbouring tribes or neighbouring towns, was that she would set birds on fire and use them to firebomb her enemies, set their tents or their towns on fire. And so, understandably, at the moment, Olga is a particular inspiration for uh, Ukrainian resistance. Sorry, there we go so here she is um no longer with uh, sparrows on fire but with anti-tank missiles and this reflects a way in which the biblical stories the stories perhaps particularly of the old testament have actually served uh the course of conquest as well as served as a source of inspiration for those who were the objects of conquest so it wasn't a cause of anxiety to the Christians of the Roman world, that um, the barbarians not be told too much about the wars that were fought, say, by the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah, because it might make them even more martial than they already were. So the translation of the Bible for the Goths, for instance, both books of kings were left out of the Old Testament because the uh, the missionaries were nervous about the impact it would have. And there is in that sense that the Old Testament in detailing the, the heroism and the victories and the triumphs of the israelite kings is not so different to what you might get to read in say the iliad or livy's early histories of rome accounts of um of great victories won by great heroes in that sense perhaps the old testament is 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 not particularly unique not particularly distinctive but having said that the reason why it can provide inspiration to that old woman looking back at the decades of misery that Ukraine had suffered before the invasion is because there is actually something incredibly distinctive, incredibly unusual about the Old Testament. And that is that it has at its heart, the heart of its historical narrative, the story both of how slaves are liberated from an oppressive master. And then how a great city with a temple dedicated to the god who had brought those slaves out of egypt is in turn besieged attacked and destroyed and in the context of the theodicy the history the poetry of the old testament the horror of the destruction of jerusalem is something that should have annihilated the identity of the children of Israel. The horrors that are currently being visited on Ukraine by a great army sweeping out of the East. This is an echo of horrors that were visited first on the kingdom of Israel, and then on the kingdom of Judah. This is a frieze illustrating um, the victory of the Assyrian army, uh, the army led by the greatest king of his age, the king of Assyria, back in the first millennium BC, uh, it comes from. It's an. It, it illustrates the uh, the capture of a, a town in Judah called Lachish, about forty miles from Jerusalem. And here you can see people being impaled, people being raised up on pikes on sticks and becoming objects of uh, obloquy and shame. That is their punishment. And there is a further punishment, which is that their children and their wives are dri- being driven off into exile. So here we see a woman driving a cart. There is a mother holding her baby child, hold, her, 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 her elder child holding her. Um, and again, this is um, something that is so vividly articulated in the Old Testament that it, it kind of catches the heart to see it uh, in visual form from the side of the people who are doing, who are inflicting this suffering. This is not a cause of shame to the Assyrians. This is a cause of victory. It's it's an illustration of their sense of triumph of their victory. It's an absolute affirmation of what was taken for granted in the ancient Near East, that the favor of the gods is bestowed on those who are victorious, those who are triumphant, that those who suffer, there is no virtue. There is no uh, favor to be had from the gods in suffering, you're just losers, plain and simple. And that is this suffering, this sense that people, that men will be executed, that women and children will be driven into into exile. You start to see there what the appeal of this story might be for an old woman in Ukraine who's watched this happen again and again because the transplantation of peoples that's going on now in Ukraine is something that happened again and again throughout the Stalinist period, but you can also see how how weird it is in the broadest context of history that anyone should think that um, that God, the gods, the divine, the heavens might actually be on the side of these people who are being driven into exile, rather than the people who are doing it. There's a sense there. I think if you trace the history of this idea, this idea that it's the suffering, it's the victims, it's those who are the objects of the powerful, who are actually God's favourites, you start to get a sense of how strange and countercultural that is in the broadest context, the broadest sweep of history. And I think that for, for us witnessing these kind of scenes now in 2022, it amplifies our sense of, our own feelings, our own responses to this spectacle. Um, And I think kind of situates our emotional response and makes us realize just how steeped and shaped and informed and influenced by these very ancient stories our instinctive responses are. These are not kind of natural responses. They're not given responses. They're culturally conditioned responses and they are culturally conditioned by the most influential book in our culture, namely the Bible, and I think you can see exactly the same sense, the exact, exactly the same way in which our instincts, our responses to tragedy and horror have been shaped by the legacy of the Bible in the other great catastrophe that um, has overwhelmed us recently. So. You will know of course that um that in the old testament and then in the book of revelation john's vision of the future um it is said that uh, terrible horsemen will wreck horrors on the world and war of course is one of those and um it's corollary it's almost inevitable corollary famine is another then of course there is death the the pale rider on his on his pale horse and then there is a fourth horseman of the apocalypse and that, of course, is disease. And just as um, certainly we in Europe, uh, it never crossed our minds that, that that war on the scale that we're seeing in Ukraine would come to Europe. So also, I think generally across the world, and particularly perhaps in, in the rich uh, industrialized Western world, it never crossed our mind that we might be subject to um, to infectious disease and that we might have to... To, to dread pandemic, that we might have to, 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 to dread and be powerless before a pandemic in the way that our forebears were. You know, generation after generation after generation of our ancestors had to suffer the kind of horror of knowing that they might be powerless before a pandemic. We have been exceptionally, exceptionally blessed and lucky not to have that. And so that I think is 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 why the impact of COVID, perhaps particularly for us in the West has been so has been so seismic has been so unsettling um, and why we have kind of snatched and grasped so desperately after hope now I said that the instincts our instincts the kind of natural impulses that um, guide and shape our responses to horror and despair are our are, are, the wellsprings of, of what might be our hope I think are profoundly and deeply Christian but having said that it seems to me a slight paradox that actually over the course of the recent pandemic um Christianity seemed to me almost a specter at the feast and I think one of the reasons for that was that um it may not be the same in America, certainly it was the case in Britain, that too many people in the church saw their prime responsibility as being serving the cause of public health. Um, absolutely, of course, pastors and bishops and whoever, they have a responsibility to, um, to tell people to wash their hands and to wear masks and to socially distance and all that kind of stuff. But in doing that, they lost their distinctiveness. They did not it seemed to me, often come to terms with what people were actually looking for from the church and not just from the church, from 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 anybody who might be able to offer some kind of sense of supernatural context, some kind of sense of, of, of divinely framed explanation for why and what was going on. But I, I particularly focus on Christianity because purely as a statement of historical fact, not in any way saying whether it is true or not, but purely as a statement of historical fact, Christianity has been looked at in in its entirety across the span of its existence and across the sweep of its adherence across the globe, the single most successful explanation that humans have ever devised to explain how and why it is that terrible things happen and why in the face of these terrible things, it is still possible to have hope and that hope i think i think the power of christianity is that that hope is not something that is easily won it is not as mark said a kind of opiate lulling people to sleep it does require you to stare into the abyss of the horrors that humans are subject to but i felt that this was the kind of language this was the kind of um the kind of the drawing on this incredible wealth of, of, of theological, poetic, historical, spiritual inheritance that, that we were not being given it by people who I think should have been it, giving it to us. And I think the one time that, that, that I, this, brought, this kind of came home to me was when I watched something that did kind of give me a sense of the strangeness and the weirdness And and therefore, the the sense of hope that Christianity had to offer people in a time of of plague and pandemic when everyone was looking for answers. And that experience was um, a mass that the Pope conducted in St. Peter's Square. Now, of course, I'm being a bit unfair in comparing, um, you know, people in churches across the world to the pope because the pope does have the most amazing backdrop i mean he really does have all the kind of the sets and the props but goodness on this occasion he really used it so this was um uh towards the end of march in 2020 uh it was in the lenten season um and the pope offered prayers for the world and he offered a prayer um for the city and for the world that he normally only gives at uh, uh, Christmas and Easter. And listening to him uh, raise these prayers was an incredibly eerie experience because in the background, there was the wailing of ambulances um, taking COVID sufferers to hospital and there was the sound of bells clanging and ringing out over Rome. And what made this experience even weirder even more uncanny, even kind of more unsettling, was the fact that after he had delivered these prayers, the Pope went to pray before um, a famous icon. And this is the icon. It's the it's called the Salus Populi Romani, the health of the Roman people, or this, perhaps the safety of the Roman people. Um, it's supposedly painted by St. Luke, almost certainly wasn't, um, but does seem to have a... Uh, a been painted in the sixth century to have come from Constantinople and come to Rome and the story is that it was sent to Pope Gregory the first Pope Gregory the great the Pope who uh, sent missionaries to my own country England to convert the the pagans who lived there to Christianity um, but when when Gregory became Pope it was in a time of plague um, when he after after he had been crowned as Pope He came out uh, of the Lateran. He raised um, uh, processions, crosses, hymns, prayers, begging God to stop the hail of arrows that it was said were raining down and causing people to die of plague all around him. And the story goes that the procession came towards um, the great tomb of Hadrian on the bank of the Tiber, uh, just down from St. Peter's in the Vatican. And that there, everyone in Rome looked up and they saw the great golden figure of St. Michael, the captain uh, of the heavenly host, uh, the prince of the archangels. And that as the archangel heard the prayers of uh, of the Pope and the Romans, so he sheathed his sword. Uh, and this is a much later sculpture illustrating that moment, um, and it stands to this day on the tomb of Hadrian or the Castel Sant'Angelo as, um, as, as it's now better known. And this, I think, whether it is pure legend, how far back you can trace this legend, it, it reflects the fact that Gregory the Great did indeed become Pope in a time of plague and that uh, not just Rome, but not just Italy, the whole Mediterranean, the world beyond, was scythed by terrible, terrible pestilence on a scale vastly greater than anything that we suffered in COVID. Um, It it was said by contemporaries that um, half the world died of this plague. And there are historians who say that that may well not have been too great an exaggeration. So the spectacle of suffering uh, witnessed by Gregory and his contemporaries was beyond our capacity to imagine. And perhaps it's not surprising then that um, that just as people in Ukraine or Iraq have looked back to uh, the horrors of the sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians to um, to try and give them some explanation for what they've been going through, so back in the sixth century, living through this terrible age of plague, um, Gregory wrote a great commentary on perhaps the most kind of existentially demanding of all the books in the Old Testament which is the book of Job. So this is um, William Blake's great illustration of Satan pouring boils on Job, um, inflicting terrible suffering on him just to kind of put him to the test. And Gregory, in his introduction to his commentary on this, on this, this strange, strange, haunting, often terrifying book, that describes all the horrors that human mortal flesh can be heir to. He writes about Job. He he says, behold, this is a bright star. So that's Job. Job is the bright star that we observe in heaven so that we may travel our dark path without stumbling. In other words, the, the vision of Job's sufferings, that is the bright star because with that vision of suffering there is also hope in the end uh, god appears speaks out of the whirlwind um assures job that in all his doings he has been right that in his understanding of god's purposes he's been right and re- brings him back to health and yet of course god doesn't bring him back totally to the way things were his children had been killed his children are not given back to him and the strangeness, the weirdness of this, the sense that horror and hope, that suffering and God's purposes can coexist, this is the bright star that Gregory is talking about. And you know, this, Gregory is not, to reiterate, Gregory is not writing as someone who has a kind of pollyanna understanding of this. He has stared horror and suffering in the face. So he has won the right to call Job a bright star, someone who can offer suffering humanity a sense of hope. And I think that it's this that makes the Old Testament so strange. It, it, it's this sense that hope can be won by staring into the absolute abyss of horror that rests perhaps can be won from the extremes of weariness. And it's that understanding that has inspired two of the great cultural traditions that continue to uh, inspire people in the 21st century. And both are bred of a particularly distinctive experience of suffering that was... um, visited on the people of the former kingdom of judah it had become the roman province of judea in the first century ad now the first of these traditions of course is the jewish one Um, and that was prompted by another sacking of jerusalem another burning of the temple just as the babylonians had done it so in ad 70 the romans did it and this is an illustration from the arch raised in the heart of rome by Titus, the general responsible for the sack of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple, carrying the great treasures of the temple. And this, of course, for Jews was a horror beyond all imaginable horrors. And it was so devastating, so utterly incomprehensible, that it persuaded many of them to give up their hope in God altogether. Uh, to apostatize, to abandon any conviction that there was any meaning that could be found in the scriptures and in their, their, their traditional faith in their God. But equally, there were other Jews of whom the rabbis became the most prominent who gazed into the Old Testament and found there in the record of what had happened to Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians the reassurance that there was hope to be wrung from this devastating miserable experience that they had gone through at the hands of the romans and that though the temple had gone scriptures remained the rituals remained it was possible to resurrect their traditions from the dark midnight that the sack of jerusalem represented for them and that sense that hope could be won from despair was something sufficient to steal the jews through all the many, many cycles of suffering that they were destined to go through in the centuries that followed the sack of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. And it continues to inspire Jews to this day. But there was of course, another experience of extreme suffering, extreme horror, extreme despair that the Roman occupation of Judea also inspired. Uh, And it inspired it some 40 years, perhaps, before the sack of Jerusalem. And that spectacle was not the sack of the city, but the execution of a single man. Um, This is one of very, very few physical pieces of evidence for the practice of crucifixion that has come to us from the Roman world. And it was actually found in a tomb outside jerusalem it is a nail that has been driven through an ankle bone and i think that it vividly vividly conveys to you the horror of what crucifixion meant in the roman world um if you imagine uh, pictures of christ on a cross his ankles tend to be crossed rather decorously. The nail is often driven through the foot. Um, That is how generally crucifixion is imagined. This was driven into the side of the cross. And another another, uh, piece of ankle bone with a nail driven through it that was found in England um, just before Christmas showed exactly the same. In other words, um, the legs were spread akimbo. Um, The ankles were were placed on either side of the cross. Um, The nails were driven through. The the, the feet were not crossed. Uh, There was no loincloth. So you would be horribly, horribly exposed. And that humiliation was a crucial part of the punishment of crucifixion. Crucifixion was seen by the Romans not just as any old form of punishment, but as absolutely the worst. And it was the worst because it was physically agonising, I mean, imagine what it would be like to have a nail driven through your ankle bone like that. Um, It was uh, often protracted. You might be on the cross for days. uh, And it was humiliating. So your genitals were on public display. Uh, People would stand and watch as birds flocked around your head and pecked out your eyes. Um, Your sufferings were absolutely on public display. And it was that that made it so horrific. For the Romans, it was that that made them that made crucifixion seem to the Romans the paradigmatic fate that should be visited on rebels against Roman rule and on slaves who dared to defy their masters. And so, the, the man on the cross, the man nailed to a cross, served as a billboard for power. So, just as those uh, the people from Lachish impaled by the Assyrians served as public bill- billboards illustrating the power of the Assyrians to crush those who opposed them. So, also, did people nailed to the cross serve as billboards advertising the Roman message that might was right? And it's when you understand that that you properly appreciate just how profoundly countercultural the very idea that a man who had been crucified might in some way be a part of the one God would have seemed to everybody. What was odd about the Christian message in the Roman world was not the idea that a man might become a God. This was something that was entirely accepted and understood. Um, Jesus had been born in the reign of Caesar Augustus, who was the son of the deified Julius Caesar. And when Augustus died, in turn, he rose into heaven and was seated at the right hand of his divine father. This is how the Romans understood it. There was nothing odd in the idea that a man might become a god. What was utterly incomprehensibly, bizarrely, weirdly, upsettingly, distressingly, embarrassingly strange and unknown was the idea that someone who had suffered the worst of fates, the fate visited on slaves, that he might in some way be a part of the divine plan and that is why in the earliest texts we have Paul's letters he says that this is a stumbling block for the Jews and an object of mockery and laughter for the Greeks for the Romans Um, the sense of embarrassment that you get in Paul's letters about this is absolutely manifest and yet what is extraordinary about this is that it is that embarrassment that in Paul's letters serves for Paul to illustrate and to demonstrate the truth of what he is saying. That this is so unexpected, so odd, that in a sense, therefore it must be true. Because otherwise, why would I be writing and telling you this? Um, And what Paul is writing for the first time, certainly in... in, uh, these are the oldest texts we have that, that convey this message is that the cross which for the Romans had been a symbol of their power has become the very opposite that it's become a symbol of the slave overcoming the master the tortured overcoming the torturer the victim overcoming the victimizer the last becoming first and this is a message so radical that even though it is drawing on that great inheritance of of hebrew scriptures that christians call the old testament it's the cross that comes to serve as a symbol for this understanding that there is power in powerlessness that there is victory in prostration and defeat and this is an idea that with the cross as its symbol will first of all go on to change the Roman Empire and then the world. And I think it's a measure of of, of the enduring strangeness of this message that even in the 4th century, when Constantine converts to Christianity, after, of course, seeing a great cross in the sky, and he bans the practice of crucifixion, and the Roman Empire becomes Christian, and the crucified Messiah becomes a familiar, the idea of the the crucified Messiah becomes central to debates and themes and practices across the empire. Still, even by the beginning of the 5th century, a century after Constantine's conversion, there is a reticence about illustrating it, about portraying it. People are still nervous. That kind of lingering sense of embarrassment endures. And when... Sorry. Sorry. When in the fifth century you do start to get portraits of Jesus on the cross, you will notice that this is not uh, transparently uh, the image of a man who is suffering horribly. I mean, he looks very buff, uh, he looks very serene, he's got a a natty little loincloth on. This is the look of an athlete. This is a man who has won first prize in the Olympic Games. And that look of serenity on Christ's face is something that will uh, endure in the the Greek-speaking world, the world of of Constantinople, the world that in the long run will give Christianity to Ukraine and to Russia. But in the West, in the Latin-speaking half of the Roman Empire, that's different. Uh, And it's a difference that um, comes to be intensified in the centuries that follow the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. Until by the the first millennium, so this is just before the year 1000, for the first time, people in the West dare to portray Christ dead on the cross. So this is the Gero Crucifix. It's in in a chapel in in Cologne Cathedral in Germany. And over the course of, of the centuries that follow, so the high medieval period in Europe, in Latin Europe, Christ's suffering on the cross, no longer something to be embarrassed about. It becomes something that, it it, it, it is a topic of obsessive spiritual meditation. Uh, It inspires liturgy, it inspires prayer, and it inspires great art. And over the course of the centuries, the readiness of artists to portray Christ's sufferings as something approximating to the true horror of what the historical Jesus had undergone becomes more and more extreme. So this is an altarpiece painted in the early 16th century, just before Luther uh, nails his his um, his theses to uh, to the door in Wittenberg. And I think that there is a sense in which oddly, this very dwelling on the suffering this readiness to portray it comes to anaesthetize in the long run people in the west to what the crucifixion had actually meant over time the cross ceases to be an instrument of torture in the imaginings of western christians and it comes to be a symbol um, a kind of physical expression of what it is to be a Christian but people have become desensitized to it and I think that perhaps the measure of that is that over the past say 150 years I think the person who has most radically understood and articulated the sheer strangeness of what Christianity does with the image of a dead man on a cross was articulated not by a believing Christian, but by an atheist who was perhaps the most notorious um, enemy of Christianity that's existed in the past century or so. And that's the great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche wrote of Christianity that to devise something which could even approach the seductive, intoxicating, anaesthetizing that word and corrupting power of that symbol of the Holy Cross, that horrific paradox of the crucified God, that mystery of an inconceivably ultimate, most extreme cruelty and self-crucifixion undertaken for the salvation of mankind. For Nietzsche, the horror of it is precisely that by valorizing the weak, by valorizing the suffering, by valorizing the man who is tortured, over the strength and the power and the authority and the glory of those who had the power to nail him to the cross the weak have been privileged over the strong the powerless have been privileged over the powerful and that for Nietzsche was repellent and revolting and disgusting and that was a perspective that of course over the decades that followed Nietzsche's death at the beginning of the 20th century fed into perhaps the most radically anti-christian ideology that Europe had seen since the conversion uh, of Constantine and that of course was fascism and its, its most radical expression, um, Nazism and the Nazis absolutely repudiated the core Christian conviction that um, that there was value in being weak and oppressed that there was uh, a glory in suffering rather than inflicting suffering and furthermore of course the Nazis also uh scorned the um, other core Christian principle that all human beings have an inherent dignity. They did not think that. They did not think that um, Jew and Greek were one in Christ. Uh, they saw Jew and Greek as fundamentally um, opposed. And I think that in the aftermath of the Second World War and the utter defeat of Nazism, um, it was that that in a way, resacralized the idea of um the value of the, the the privilege the privileging of the weak over the strong uh the idea that in despair and misery and suffering hope and purpose might be one that in a way now we see we we understand that message through the prism of of the story of the second world war the defeat of the nazis perhaps for many people more than through the christian story and yet we only see that for christian reasons and it may be that one of the reasons for the decline of institutional christianity certainly in europe much less than in america but certainly in europe is that the contours of that christian story that the message that hope is to be wrung from utter prostration and despair. Is one that is now understood in terms of our understanding of Nazis, the, the, the history of the Nazis, the atrocities that they inflicted, rather than through the cross and rather than, and, and the traditions of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But we only have that understanding of the Nazis because we are coming from a deeply, deeply Christian place, and I think that um, that that, as I say, the theme of this. Um, of this conference is, is hope for a weary world the power of the christian story as i think we 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 see in ukraine and in iraq and in all kinds of places where people's sufferings have been vastly greater than anything that was visit, that has yet been visited on on our prosperous cities in the west The hope for a weary world, the fact that we can gain hope from the depths of despair is perhaps the most precious legacy that Christianity has left us. And so I would like to end by just going back to that church in Sinjar. As I say, it it had been purposefully demolished. People had taken jackhammers to it, smashed it up, utterly desecrated it but you will see that there is a rough cross has been erected on it. Um, and I, re- I remember from my experience going there, it, kind of surrounded by so much experience of misery and horror and suffering, that seeing that symbol there certainly gave me, dare I say hope, I think it did give me a sense of hope. And it's it. It was an understanding of hope that I have clung that I clung to throughout my um, my time in Iraq and throughout the uh, the, the, the convulsive and unsettling um, and unhappy years that that the world has passed through since then. Um, and just to repeat, this is this is not a an easily won hope. It is a hope that is, is one in the face of unspeakable suffering and misery. But it is precisely for that reason, I think, that it does indeed authentically qualify as hope. Thank you.
1: Well, uh, Tom, if you don't mind, can you hear me, Tom? I can, yes. Oh yes, okay, I think uh, hopefully we have time for just a few questions from the audience. In order for him to hear you though, I will need you to come forward and approach the microphone. Bearing in mind that when we talk about weariness, it is one o'clock in the morning where Tom <laughs> is. So um, are there any, is, would anyone like to kick off uh, and come and just ask a question or make a comment? Walk forward to the microphone.
0: Tom, I watched a podcast years at the end of last year where you were talking about India and Islam as being a way of life and not really a religion to those people and that when the kings of uh, Europe wanted to become Pope that the papacy more or less retreated to protect itself, but that that was the beginning of sec- the secular uh, movement that now has taken over the world to a certain extent. Could you expand on that or tell me I'm wrong <laughs> in what I heard? Well, the the, the, the the core conviction that that I've tried to articulate tonight and and that. I've only barely touched on is the way in which, in the West, we are so utterly saturated with Christian assumptions that we don't even realize it. Um, and it's not, you, know, you don't have to be a believing Christian to be utterly radically shaped by the impact and the influence of 2,000 years of Christian history and, 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 and theology and learning and practice. And I would say that the idea of the secular is an absolutely classic example of this. So there is a tendency among people, say, who are hostile to religion to say, we should just focus on the secular, push religion to one side. To assume that this is an absolutely standard given way to see the world, but actually both the idea of there being something called religion that is separate from something called the secular, and the idea of there being something called the secular is a completely distinctive idea that is bred of christian history and its ultimate roots lie in you know christ's render unto caesar what is caesar render unto god what is god's but it was sharpened by um augustine the great latin church father in the fifth century when rome fell and was sacked um, and he said this doesn't matter because um, rome is simply a part of what he called the cyclum the um the mortal order of things things that are bound on flux things that are that are born and live and then die, because everything in the fallen world uh, must live and fall and die. But that if we want eternity, Augustine says, then we must look to the religio, the bond that joins us to heaven, the the radiant eternity of heaven. Um, And that essentially is the church. So over the course of the centuries that follow Augustine's life, Um, This idea that there are twin dimensions, the dimension of the cyclum, the dimension of religio, comes to be kind of hardwired into the minds of Latin Christians, and it becomes the focus of a great revolution in the 11th century, where kings and emperors are bled of their absolutely traditional stake in the dimension of the supernatural. Kings and emperors in the Roman world, as as across Eurasia, uh, indeed, uh, as in the you know, the great kingdoms of of, of, um, Mesoamerica as well, pretty much everywhere. It's assumed that if you have power on earth, then you have power in the dimension of the supernatural as well. As a king, you are a ruler, both for mortals and in the presence of the divine. The Pope say, no, that, that, that is not the case, because by doing that, you are corrupting the purity of the church, which is the guardian of the religio that joins us to heaven. And so it's the church itself, it's the papacy, it's the it's it's the, the the medieval church that intensifies this sense that there are twin dimensions. That again, over the course of the Middle Ages and then into the um, I- into the early modern period, comes to be what in English we call secular and religion. And by the time that um, Europeans are going out into the world, whether to to found colonies in places like India or in the Muslim world or across, you know, the continental North America, those Christians are taking with them the idea that there are things called the secular and there are things called religion, and they introduce it to the rest of the world. And one of the measures of just how influential this is is that in India, where they had no idea that there was something called religion, they had no idea that they belonged to a religion called Hinduism, which was entirely... a a kind of concept uh, introduced to them by the British who were trying to make sense of what they found in India and so brought with them their understanding of um, the secular and the religious and imposed it on India and kind of shaped their understanding of Indian civilization and society and culture to, to reflect their own understanding. When the British left, India defined itself as a secular republic. So... The British may have left, but they'd left behind them this understanding of the secular, that that, that, that was a wholly alien one. Um, and I think that part of what's happening now in India with Narendra Modi, with the idea of Hindutva, the 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 um, the sense that India should be returned to a kind of purely Hindu way of organising things, is a kind of recognition that the idea of the secular is 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 a is a, an alien one. It is basically a Christian one, and you can see the same phenomenon. Um, on display in Turkey with President Erdogan, who is reversing um, the the, the secular revolution that was introduced by Ataturk when the Ottoman Empire fell. Um, And the great symbol of that, of course, is is Hagia Sophia, the great cathedral of of Constantinople that got turned into a mosque, um, that Ataturk then turned into a museum, and which Erdogan, um, a couple of, of years ago, turned back into a mosque. And by doing that, he was making a statement that the secular is not neutral. It's not a kind of given. It's a very, very culturally conditioned way of seeing the world. It's basically a Christian one. Um, And I think the more this happens, so the more people in the West will be brought to recognize that things that they assume are just given, just the way that things are, are in fact bred of deeply, deeply Christian assumptions. And that in a sense, to be secular, is to be Christian. I mean that's the great paradox.
1: <laughs> Anyone else? Well Tom, I have a, I have a question. Uh, you're addressing the uh, people who, um, who, who, who identify as the old type of Christian who, who believe in God. What encouragement or uh, um, advice or simply um, uh, tips or would you have for those seeking to communicate the power and efficacy of this symbol uh, or truth in in our Western uh,
0: situation? Well, I, I, I think... Um, so Nietzsche's great insight was that in the long run, it, it's impossible to have... Christian values and ethics without christian belief that 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 was what he argued um, and that if god is dead then in the long run the, the the principles and the beliefs and the values that 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 god upheld will die with him uh, and i think i think that I, as i said in in talking about the nazis i, th- I think the way in which um, if you like hitler hitler has become the devil auschwitz has become hell the Nazis have become demons, that people in the West often now, rather than saying, what would Jesus do in doing it, will ask, what, what would Hitler do and do the opposite? That that has kind of disguised the way it, 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 it's enabled people who may no longer be practising Christians, nevertheless, to hold on to Christian assumptions and values, of which the one I was talking about t- tonight, the idea that there is a value in being a victim is, is a kind of very, very obvious one. Because that's not at all an obvious idea. Um, you know, you've in, in in your country, um, over the past two years, you've seen how powerful that idea remains. Um, you know, people going on Black Lives Matter marches may not be necessarily practicing Christians, but the conviction that um, innocent people should not be uh, killed—that um, they that that to suffer in a way, dignifies you. I mean, these are, where do these ideas come from, if not from Christianity? So I think to that extent, uh, Christianity can have a kind of ghostly afterlife. But Nietzsche's point remains, you have to believe in something. And if you start to to jettison the, the belief in God, the belief in the supernatural, the belief in, the, the the historical reality of the resurrection and its kind of cosmic significance then in the long run you are licensed to believe all kinds of different things and and fascism is an illustration of that and if we've been inoculated by fascism there's no particular reason to imagine that that inoculation will last forever so It's possible that the future of the West is simply that it will be a kind of a liberalism, a post-Christian liberalism, that there's enough within liberalism to keep those Christian ideas kind of going and and animating it. But it's equally possible that that won't be the case and that we will turn in a, we will kind of in a way return to the world that existed before Christianity, a world in which power and might um, are enshrined that might is right. Um, that that the cross will come to mean what it had meant for the Romans. It will serve as a symbol of power rather than as a a repudiation of power. Um, But perhaps there is a third option, which is that people who come to realise that their beliefs and values are are not simply manifest to everyone, that they derive from uh, a historical um, legacy and that that legacy is a Christian one, And that therefore, by implication, things that they may believe in very, very passionately, for instance, uh, human rights or the inherent dignity of every human being, or that um, those who suffer, uh, those who are at the bottom of the pile, have a particular dignity, that um, those who are strong should care for the weak. That these ideas are, in a way, as fantastical um, as anything that believing Christians believe. And that, in a sense, to believe in them is to share in some way in Christian belief. And it may be that people who come to realize that and to feel that may think, well, if I want to believe in human rights, um, I may as well go the whole hog. I may may as well believe in the, um, the idea that there is uh, a God in whose image all human beings were created and who gives a dignity to every human being. Because ultimately, to believe in human rights and to believe in um, that the Lord Jesus Christ rose on the third day and ascended into heaven, they're both equally, by the standards of pure rationalism, fantastical. And yet people are perfectly capable of believing in human rights. Therefore, in the long run, if they want to continue to believe in human rights, they're going to have to get to grips with the fact that it's essentially a theological idea. But I think that if, if the churches are going to provide succour and explanation for people who are like that the churches cannot afford to be a kind of pale simulacrum of secular liberal society they have to actually emphasize everything that may make them feel embarrassed in, in a liberal secular society they have to emphasize the strangeness the weirdness the bizarre quality of what they believe in because ultimately it is weird and bizarre and strange But it's that strangeness that has animated it for 2,000 years. And I think that there is no prospect of Christianity reviving, certainly in Europe, um, and maybe in America as well, which I I have much less um, experience of. But I think, essentially, secular societies, it may be that people who are living in secular societies are going to to actively start looking for the strange and the weird And my advice for what it's worth, and I I have no special qualification to give it, but purely for what it's worth, would be that churches should be prepared to emphasise the strangeness, because I think that that is what people will, will be looking for.
1: Well, why don't we give him one more round of applause. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.
1: And thank you for persevering and thank you for staying up this evening. And uh, we just salute you and applaud you. And and, uh, we're just so grateful this was able to transpire in some form. So um, Godspeed. And uh, I guess the rest is history.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Have a good evening.
1: Thank you. God bless you. you.
0: Bye-bye.